Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. How many of you love sleep? I'm putting up both my hands in this equation and saying that I adore my sleep. So much so that I would not be able to function if I missed even one night of sleep at the time that I go to bed. It really affects how I feel, my mood, every aspect of my life is literally thrown out of whack if I don't get a good night's sleep, if I go to bed really late because I have to get up at the same time that I normally get up. That's just how I am wired, my DNA, and it turns out that it's perfectly normal. (laughs) So usually what happens for people, and I think this is a wrong mindset to have, and my, my guest today, Dr. Michael Bruce, would agree with me that usually if we have something important on on our any given day, the first thing that usually goes is sleep. How many of you can relate to what I just said? But this needs this narrative needs to change in so much the fact that we need to value sleep more than what we actually give it credit for. Turns out that sleep is so important for living a healthy and sustainable life to living longer, actually, and so many other areas of your life. This is a masterclass on sleep, essentially, and my guest today, Dr. Michael Bruce, is a sleep doctor. He's also a clinical psychologist. Dr. Bruce is the author of the book, The Power of When. Uh, His third book was a number one Amazon uh, bestseller for time management and number one in happiness, 28 overall in book sales on Amazon, which is pretty pretty incredible. He has a groundbreaking biohacking book uh, proving that there is a perfect time to do everything based on your hidden biological chromotype. Dr. Bruce gives the reader the exact perfect time to have sex, run a mile, eat a cheeseburger, and ask your boss for a raise and so much more. His second book, The Sleep Doctor's Diet Plan, Lose Weight Through Better Sleep, um, is 
discusses the science and relationship between quality sleep and your metabolism and his first book, Good Night, The Sleep Doctor's Four-Week Program to Better Sleep and Better Health, uh, was an Amazon top 100 bestseller and has been met with rave reviews and continues to change the lives of many, many readers. Like I was saying to you in, in the very beginning, this is literally uh, a masterclass almost on sleep. I ask him so many different questions. We get into some things that I think you guys might find interesting and helpful and useful takeaways in for, or basically for your own life uh, to have better night's sleep, what you should be doing, um, and so much more. So we, we unbox lots in this conversation. So my friends, if you do get something from it, I would love for you to share it around to your friends and family. I think sleep is such an important topic we should be talking more about. And what better person to have on the show than the sleep doctor himself, Dr. Michael Bruce. Help support Dr. Bruce's work and his message by sharing this one around or getting copies of his book too. Let him know what you guys think of this conversation. Everything that you need is all in the show notes below, making it easy for you guys. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to learn about why sleep is so important as we dive into the story box today and listen, learn, and hear the wisdom and advice and the story of none other than Dr. Michael Bruce. Thanks for having me, dude. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. Now, my first question to you is, how did you sleep last night? I slept okay. Um, I had dental surgery two weeks ago. And so I had to have anesthesia and it's been really interesting. I had never experienced this before. I'd never been in, under anesthesia before, but I had post uh, anesthesia insomnia. So I was waking up at three 30 in the morning, not able to return to sleep. So it was very, it was very interesting. But last night was the second night in a row where I slept normally. So I'm in good shape. Well, I actually love going and being put to sleep <laughs> on the operating table. <laughs> I love having that like that groggy wake up. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> so can you tell me about, you know, what actually happens when you go under, like when you're given that sort of drug to go under? Well, it depends upon the drug, of course, but basically what happens is, so to be clear, anesthesia and sleep are not the same thing, right? And so anesthesia is where you poison the body to a point of unconsciousness, where it's extremely difficult to arouse the body to the point where you can actually slice the body wide open, uh, so on and so forth. Um, that is not sleep, to be clear. That is an anesthetized state, uh, almost like a coma. Uh, would be in such certain ways. So when you think about sleep, you can think about it on a continuum, right? There's actual sleep, but then there's the death, right? Would be the other end of that continuum. And so there's a lot of space between here and there and uh, anesthesia kind of puts you in the middle. Mm, right. So I'm, I'm fascinated by all this stuff and I want to go back a little bit and ask you my very first question, always, sure. um, which is what does success look like for you? In terms of my sleep or in terms of my life? in terms of your life and even in your sleep? Well, you know, for me, I would have to say that uh, fairly recently, probably within the last two to three years, success in my life is balance. That's what I would consider success in my life to be. I had a very unbalanced life for a very long time and it definitely caught up with me. And so now I seek balance. And so I do things, I do things differently now than I ever did before. 
Uh, examples of that are I'm every morning I wake up at exactly the same time every single day. Um, and that has actually been quite helpful uh, on the sleep side, but also on the life side. Uh, that also affords me time to do breath work every morning, meditation every morning, spend time with my dog every morning before I start my day. And that kind of sets me on a balanced path of the day. And that way I can be helpful to people, um, but I can also handle, you know, my lifetime situations as well. So balance is probably the biggest thing for me. I'm fascinated by this word balance because I myself struggle to get this balanced lifestyle and I'm always interested. Can we actually really achieve this proper sense of balance and what that actually really looks like? Is it individualized for each person? or can every single person actually achieve balance in one's life? I would argue that I think number one, everybody can achieve it. I don't think it is an unachievable, I don't think you are genetically unbalanced. Although you might argue that people with significant mental health issues, schizophrenia, things, not that they would be considered mentally unbalanced, it's not the right terminology that I would use, but in this particular part of the conversation, um, that might be a tough thing for some of them to achieve. Um, you know, when you talk about balance in general for the non-mental health group, um, I don't think it's I don't think it's a non-achievable thing. I think a lot of it has to do, at least in my case, discipline mm. um, really had to do with figuring out what the right things for me to do were. And then the consistency in which to do them um, has really, I think, played the role. But um, also, I had to have a safe enough environment to try new things to figure out what I needed. And that was not easy to achieve. I had to do something very specific to get to that safe environment to do that. So what did you have to do? What was the specific thing that you needed to do in order to get there? I joined a men's group. Ah, okay. And so I have a group of guys that I talk to, hang out with every single day, and they create a safe space in which for all of us to explore and create uh, whatever we want to do, whether it's breath work or meditation or, you know, uh, learn a firearm or, you know, go rock climbing. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, places where you can be with other people who will allow you to not have to be perfect all the time. <laughs> Unified accountability. <laughs> yeah. I like it. So when when did you find this interest? Because you're also a psychologist, you're not just a sleep doctor. So right. When did you get the interest? Did you always want to be a psychologist? And then secondly, where did the interest in, in sleep doctor come from as well? So um, honestly, I, I got a P well, so I got my undergraduate degree in psychology because that's where the cute girls were. That was very simple. Um, I went to a school that had a lot of pretty girls and you might as well go to classes with pretty girls. So I became, I went and got involved in psychology because of lots of pretty girls. And then um, I ended up uh, saying to myself at the end of my college collegiate career, I wanted to become an MD, and, but I hadn't taken any of my pre-meds. So I took an additional year and I took all my pre-meds and then I realized that I don't wanna be an MD. I don't wanna do this all the time. But so then I went and uh, applied for my doctorate because I, what I realized was, is that I was really interested in like the human condition, like what makes people do what they do. And medical school doesn't really teach a lot of that. I mean, it does in a certain kind of way. Um, what it does is it teaches a lot of the biology and the anatomy and the physiology. I was more interested in the psychology and I only, I didn't want to go through four years of school and get six week rotation in psychiatry. And, you know, that was it. So I was like, I'm just going to run the whole four years with it. And so I got the PhD in clinical 
um, which was fun and interesting. But while I was there, I did a residency, um, just like you would do for as an MD. And um, the originally I wanted to be a sports psychologist. I wanted to teach athletes how to throw faster and more accurate and all. I mean, it's cool, right? I mean, I could never be an athlete, but I could probably teach athletes how to do some cool stuff. And um, best program in the country was at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi, of all places. And uh, I couldn't get in. Um, only the Harvards and the Yales and the Princetons kind of went there. I went to the University of Georgia, top 20 program, but it wasn't Harvard, um, but they had a sleep track. And um, I, I was the guy, I worked my way through graduate school in the electrophysiology department. So I know how to take machines apart and put them back together. I'm just, I'm a weird kind of geeky, wonky kind of guy. And um, so uh, I, I knew how to work the same machines that were the sleep machines. So I figured I'd sell myself as a sleep guy and get into the program. And then I just transfer into the sports psych side. Cause just cause you tell me I'm not going to be in your program doesn't mean I'm not going to be in your program. It just means you haven't figured out that I'm going to be in your program. And so I applied for the sleep position and I got it. And when I got there, I said, Hey guys, I want to transfer. And they said, hold tight. You got to do this for the first six months. And by the third day, I absolutely fell in love with clinical sleep medicine. I knew that was exactly where I wanted to be. So it's been, I've been in love with it ever since. It's cool. Um, it's fun. It's interesting. Honestly, it works like this. Like mm. when you can help somebody with their sleep, it's amazing. I mean, you, you change somebody's sleep, you change their life. A hundred percent. Now I personally love my sleep. I am known for going That's to true. bed very, very early uh, and waking up very, very early. Uh, my friends say it's a bit nuts because they're like, they're night owls. And I'm like, nah, I don't do it. <laughs> I find more energy early in the morning rather than late at night. That's when my brain just sort of. Yeah, well, you're an, you're an early bird. You're what I call a lion. Yeah, I'm one of those. Um, and I like that. Or well, I'm an eagle. Uh, I, I say eagles <laughs> get up early too. So uh, it's like the, the early bird gets the worm, so to speak. Well, I get my I get my energy. I get everything done early in the morning. But I'm curious, like you mentioned there for a moment that you, you went into psychology for all the, the pretty girls. Did you end up finding one? I did. She was just talking to me a minute ago. Um, she, so you got me for about 20 more minutes. Um, you know, it was funny. I, I met my wife um, on a blind date set up by our mothers. Um, we grew up a quarter of a mile down the street from each other our whole lives, but we didn't meet until after uh, she was uh, out of school and I was out of school, as a matter of fact. But we've known each other for a gazillion years. Wow, that's amazing. So I could I could speak to you forever, uh, but I want to get to the the uh, actual questions I did have for you. Fire away. I've only got 20 minutes left with you. So you you talk a lot about sleep disorders and specifically uh, in, in peak performers as well. There's, I think it's over like 80 something, uh, sleep disorders. Is there one specific one that is the worst one out of all of them or all of them pretty bad? So, you know, there are 88 different sleep disorders out there. Um, and we, there, we learn about new ones every couple of years. Um, you know, when you look at it from a peak performance standpoint, it's really, it's not as much thinking about it as what is the sleep disorder that could be, uh, you know, causing a peak performance issue, but rather what is the disordered sleep that can do that, right? So it's not, look, if you've got apnea, you should figure that shit out, right? Like go get, talk to a doctor, get it figured out. Because by the way, if you have undiagnosed apnea and it's untreated, you're going to die. Okay. I'm just going to be quite that blunt about it. I've seen it happen hundreds and hundreds of times. So Stop being ridiculous. I get it. You might not want to, you know, go to sleep with a mask on your face. There's something new out there. There's actually several new things out there that could be great. But 
if you got narcolepsy, you know that, right? That's come out around 14 or 15. Um, if you've got insomnia, that's something that can be something that can creep in depending upon stress and things of that nature. Um, and I think that's really probably the peak performer's biggest foe if we were thinking about a sleep disorder. Um, but I think a lot of peak performers, they just get crappy sleep because they do stupid things like they jolt up on caffeine and energy drinks and stuff like that, right? Or they're like, okay, I'm going to party with my friends. And if I, if I play, you know, if I work hard, I'm going to party hard. So I'm going to drink until I pass out. Well, clearly that's not good for sleep. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's, it, I'm not saying don't have fun. Like you can have as much fun as you want, but it, balance, there are consequences to everything that you do. You know, if you want to drink, I would say stop drinking three hours before bed, you know, keep it to two to three drinks. You, you're going to be, you'll sleep fine. You'll still enjoy yourself. And you know, what's the problem? So where do these disorders actually come from? Is it more of a genetic uh, imbalance or is it something more to it than that? So it depends on gen uh, generally speaking, a lot of the sleep disorders are genetically, at least partially based sleep apnea. You know, when you look at craniofacial morphology, it's passed down from generation to generation to generation. It's a great book out now by James Nestor called breath. Um, if you're familiar with it, James is a friend of mine. Oh, is that back there? I can't see. I don't have my glasses on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, you got McConaughey's book back there too. Green light. That's a great book. I just finished it. Um, fantastic, fantastic stuff. But I mean, you know, when you, that's genetically speaking, insomnia could be, um, environment, right? It could be, uh, nurture versus nature, right? Did I say it the right? Yeah. Nurture versus nature, right? So it could be your external environment, not a genetic thing that's going on. So it depends on the disorder. So how do we actually fix people? Is it actually fully curable? Are all these disorders curable? Uh, for the most part, well, let me, let me to, be, to be clear, they're treatable. I'm not convinced any of them are curable. I mean, there are some people that I can fix their sleep uh, and they don't have, that it doesn't require much else, but there are some people where it's a Band-Aid um, for an extended period of time, right? So why, why is that? The case like depends what? on the disorder. So if it's apnea and you've got a anatomy that's in your way, there's only one way to, to cure that and that's to cut it out. Well, a lot of people don't want to do surgery and quite frankly, surgery doesn't have great odds. So that might be one of those ones that you have to treat for an extended period of time where uh, you might be able to cure something like insomnia if, or a nightmare disorder if you're able to process through the emotions of the nightmare as an example. So speaking about sleeping in general and why we actually need sleep. Now, you know, it's kind of obvious, like body reset, everything like that. But have you ever looked at like the, the main question or the big question is why sleep? Like, can't we just, you know, do something else? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, every, um, every creature that has a vertebrae, um, has a period of what we call quiescence, right? So there's a time time of shutting down, right? And so there's a, there's several different theories. Matthew Walker wrote a book about it. Unfortunately, he never answered the question. Um, he didn't need to look at the book. He never answered the why we sleep, you know? <laughs> We'd love to know, Matthew, um, you know? I mean, like, here's the thing is, I don't think, every, I don't think we're gonna know it. I think it's multifactorial. Um, I think there's a whole host of different bodily functions that occur, I think. Um, Sleep is again in every animate, uh, you know, organism on Earth. If you if it moves, it probably has to have a time to not move, right? Mm. And so I think that we will we may never know all of the reasons why we sleep, but we sure as heck know what happens when we don't sleep. Mm. So speaking about actually going to bed and the best times to actually go to bed, uh, yep. I want to 
I want to have this. <laughs> ask this question for all my friends out there that uh, 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 annoy me <laughs> with the with mm-hmm. the uh, you know going to bed early. Um, is it better to go to bed early and wake up early, or is it better to go to bed later and wake up later? Neither. Neither. It's better to go to bed based on your chronotype. So if you know what your chronotype is and you go into your chronotypical swim lane for sleep, that's the better performer. So you're an early bird. So there's no way you should be going to bed late because genetically speaking, it's probably not true. If you don't know, do 23andMe or do Ancestry.com. It says it right there. It'll tell you if you have the aberration. It's on the PER3 gene. If there's a flip, you can be early or if there's a flip the other way, you can be a night owl. And so that's some of the basics of it, but it's very simple. If you go to chronoquiz.com, you can figure out your chronotype right away. It'll tell you exactly when to go to bed. Can you change your chronotype? No, it's genetic. Oh, oh good. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with that. So speaking about that, why is it like when, when you're a kid, um, why is it that some, some babies sleep better than other babies? Is it once again, because of the chronotype? Well, it's different. Well, there's those, those are two different questions. So number one, everybody goes through all the chronotypes throughout their lifetime. So when you're an infant, you're an early bird. Then in your toddler years, you become in the middle. And then as a teenager, you become a night owl. Then you lock into something and then you go fast forward to uh, later times where you're elderly like me in the 50s. And then what you'll see is you'll start to go backwards and get earlier again. So you actually go through all of the chronotypes. The reason that about children don't sleep well. There's a hundred reasons why children don't sleep well, but to be clear, there are some children who are born genetically with a temperament that is not good for sleep. And so there are some children who genetically do not sleep well, period. Mm. Now I am, I am running out of time. I would love to have you back on to sort of continue this conversation because I've got so many more questions for you, but I guess my, my rounding off question to you would be, for someone like myself that wakes up during the, you know, different hours of the night, my circadian rhythm, and that sort of stuff, what right. advice would you give to me? So I would use it to your advantage. So number one, whoever tells you that you're going to bed too early is an idiot. That's number one. So let's just get that clear and on tape. For any of your buddies who are giving you shit, have them listen to this right here, right now. I'm a doctor. I'm one of the best in the world at what I do and you're doing the right thing. Okay. So let's just clear that air right there. All right. That's number one, following your chronotype. Here's the clue is because now you'll start to understand when is the perfect time of day to do certain stuff for you. And you've already said it in our conversations, you know, that certain times of day, you can get stuff done because you're awake and you're alert and you're popping and you're moving. That's the advantage that you're going to have. Follow your chronotype, dude. Don't 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 listen to what those other people are, t- are telling you and take that time and also use some of that time, not just for not just for your career success, but for your personal success. So, like, you know how I do meditation and breath work and stuff like that. Use some of that time for things that are important for you or explore something new that you want to try. Nobody's awake, dude. Figure out something cool to check out. And then by the time everybody wakes up, you'll be even further ahead. What has been the worst sleep advice you've ever been given? Ha. Me personally? You personally. That I've given to somebody or that I've been given to me? Let's do both. So the worst sleep advice that you've given to someone and the worst you've ever gotten. So probably before I was a sleep specialist, I could say I definitely gave some pretty bad advice. One of the things that um, I definitely never understood until I really started to understand sleep physiology was how you cannot catch up on sleep on the weekends. 
And so I remember telling a very sleep deprived patient very early in my career, um, hey, you know, you can try to catch up on sleep on the weekends um, if you're not able to get sleep during the week. And the studies have now confirmed that that is a terrible idea. Nobody can really catch up on sleep on the weekends. And so I'd have to say that would definitely be one of the things. Um, advice that I've gotten um, that I think has been pretty terrible for sleep um, has probably always surrounded alcohol, which is, you know, I three drinks and you're, you should be just fine on an airplane, Michael, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I would say that the, that those are the biggies, right? Is, you know, the controversial areas of what is sleep debt? How does that work? And then, you know, when you, when you don't know, or people, people figure out what works for them, uh, but might not be the healthiest thing in the universe. It's probably surrounding alcohol. So tell me about why uh, specifically for someone that, you know, can't catch up on the weekend. Why is that such a controversial thing like sleep debt? Yeah. So, so for, I mean, it seems like we argue about it back and forth within the sleep community, like every three or four years, people say you do have it and you can make it up. And people say you don't have it and you can't. There was a study that came out this year, I believe that I think really settled it for me. So they they followed, um, I think it was either 26 or 32 people for six weeks, right? You are allowed five and a half hours of sleep during the week, eight hours of sleep on the weekend, okay? Very highly monitored. They knew exactly how much sleep each person was getting. The interesting thing was they monitored memory, attention, focus, and mood, all right, in, in these this cohort of people. And of course, as you would imagine, week one, it was high, then week two, it gets worse, then week three, it gets worse, week four, it gets worse, week five, it gets worse. Here was the most interesting thing. That, that was kind of predictable. When they were testing people on the Monday after they got their weekend catch-up sleep, everybody thought that they were killing it. They thought that they were at 100%. And when they were doing reaction time tasks on them, they were detriment, detriment, detriment. And so their brains were fooling them that they were more alert than they actually were. When you stick those types of people in a driving simulator by like week four or five, they're going to hit somebody. Mm. Right. And so that's really what what the, this study really showed was, hey, guys, look, you can you can try it. But at the end of the day, if you just could get a consistent amount of sleep every single night, life would work. You know, like what is it that you're doing that's so important that you can't get an extra hour of sleep in your life? Right. I would have to argue there's nothing more important than getting an extra hour. Look, everything you do, you do better with a good night's sleep. Sleep affects every organ system, every disease state. Like anything that you're doing, if you're skimping on sleep, you're absolutely kind of, you know, cutting yourself at the knees. Like you're giving yourself a, a, a disadvantage rather than an advantage of, you know, getting less sleep. Mm, I think people, the first thing to go is sleep. Like they just absolutely. think that, you know, once again- Oh, there's a reason. On. Yeah. yeah, there's a good reason for it, because in our brains, the more sleep deprived we get, the more we tell ourselves that we're awesome. Okay, ah. So it because we, we just because think about it, we just grab a Coca-Cola or a caffeinated beverage, right? Or, you know, a Snickers or whatever. And we just plow on through. Right. You know, nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to be successful type of thing. And it just doesn't really work that way. You know, I wish people understood that. And over time, they do, because um, it really kind of catches up with them, unfortunately. <laughs> 
It does. And you sort of brought up a very interesting uh, point I want to get into in just a moment about caffeine and side effects or, yeah, of all that. But I wanted to sort of stay on sleep debt for just a moment and say, and I really ask, so is sleeping in in general bad for us? Because I notice whenever I sleep in that I don't feel as energized as what I did before. Like I feel like crap. Yeah, it's horrible. Right? It's horrible. And here's what happens is when you sleep past your kind of normal wake up time, what your brain will probably do is uh, go into a deeper stage of sleep. Dude, you ever take a nap and wake up from the nap and feel like crap from the nap? (laughs) That's what happens when you sleep in on Saturday morning or on Sunday morning, right? That's the phenomenon. It's called sleep inertia, right? And what it is, is it's melatonin continuing to be produced by you sleeping in, right? Hmm. Melatonin has a very finite cutoff point, but then if you decide to keep your eyes closed and you keep it dark, guess what? Your brain will just keep producing it, right? And then you have a problem because then you try to wake up in the middle of, you know, new melatonin production and you're dragging ass all day. Hmm. So napping in general is not good for us. I I don't nap at all. So- Well, here's what I'll tell you. There's a couple of different kinds of naps and some of them are good and some of them aren't so good. So first of all, nobody with insomnia should nap. It's a terrible, terrible idea. Um, You lower your sleep drive, just makes it harder for you to fall asleep at night. Just don't do it. Um, Now, if let's say you only got five hours of sleep last night for whatever reason, you had to wake up early, catch a flight or, you know, be on a presentation, what, what have you, taking a 25 minute nap during the day. It's not the worst idea I've ever heard, okay? Mm-hmm. If you go over 25 minutes, you're in that whole dragon ass scenario. The only way to get past it is to go 90 minutes, which is a full sleep cycle, roughly, okay? Now, to be fair, everybody's total sleep cycle is a little bit different. And so you could still wake up after a 90 minute nap and not feel so great. Um, that's why I prefer the 25 minute kind of power nap. It yeah. seems to work the best. Now, we also know there's a time of day that's best for napping. Like if you got a nap somewhere between one and three in the afternoon, what happens is, is we have a temperature drop that occurs in the middle of the night, you know, temperature goes up. As soon as it crests, melatonin gets kicked off. Turns out we have a small dip between one and three in the afternoon, and there's a slight spike in melatonin. And so that's why people get sleepy. By the way, the easiest way to avoid that, go outside in the sunlight. When sunlight hits your eye, it turns off the melatonin faucet in your head almost immediately. So if you feel it, if you know you get sleepy every day around 12, 30, one o'clock, have your lunch outside. You'd be surprised. It'll work. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So where does, I've always been fascinated about what determines how much uh, melatonin we have secreted in our system. So if someone has low melatonin, what usually is the cause of that? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. So melatonin deficiencies, which is, I think, what you're describing, um, can occur for a whole host of reasons. Um, Number one, age. Um, As we age, our bodies just don't produce as much melatonin. We don't have as uh, high a quality sleep. It has an effect. Also, melatonin changes timing over the course of time, right? And so as we, you ever notice how older people, they're eating dinner at 4.30 in the afternoon? (laughs) Yes. Right? It's because their internal biological clock is going earlier, not later. But if you were a teenager, you'd never eat at 4.30 in the afternoon. You'd rather eat at like nine o'clock at night, right? Because your biological clock is in the opposite direction. So one reason that we see changes in melatonin production is is of course with age. Um, Other things, stress. Stress will absolutely slow down melatonin production. There's some interesting data behind that. Caffeine, 
which is something that you said you wanted to double tap on, that actually has some effects on melatonin as well. You'd be surprised um, how many things can have an effect on melatonin, but it's it's all the things that you would think that would that would, because it's all the same things that affect sleep. Caffeine, alcohol, timing, you know, all of those things are going to affect sleep and they're also going to affect melatonin production. It's funny how you mentioned how old the people have dinner at like 4.30. Like I have I have dinner at like five o'clock or 5.30. <laughs> so it must mean that- You're an old, old man waiting to be. Old man, <laughs> just pretty pretty <laughs> fast coming to me. But um, um, okay, let's, let's double tap on the caffeine for a moment. And I want to yeah. dive into the sort of the science behind it because I don't drink coffee. I don't have caffeinated drinks. Uh, I don't have yeah. like any of the extra stuff. And yet I'm a bundle of energy usually in the morning and then come nighttime, that's just, I'm off. So yep. what does caffeine do to our system? What does it do to from a, from a sleep perspective? From yeah. a sleep perspective. So, so from a sleep perspective, it's kind of interesting. And so when you think about it, um, so let me, let me back up for a second. So there are two systems in the brain that cause you to sleep. One is called sleep drive. The other is called sleep rhythm, right? Rhythm is the circadian rhythm. You and I have talked about that before. Yep. Sleep drive is rather interesting. So it turns out when a cell eats a piece of glucose, something comes out the back end. One of those things is a property called adenosine. Mm -hmm. Adenosine works its way through your system and ends up in a very specific receptor site in your brain. As adenosine accumulates, you get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier, okay? That's how sleep works. Now. Caffeine is an interesting molecule. It turns out if you look at the molecular structure of caffeine and the molecular structure of adenosine, they're off by one molecule. Only one. That's only one. Isn't, <laughs> isn't that bizarre that the thing that makes you sleep and the thing that makes you awake are off by one molecule, right? <laughs> so here's what's fascinating is caffeine fits perfectly into that receptor, into the adenosine receptor site because it's only off by one molecule. And so as an example, one of the napping tricks, so we're gonna combine napping and caffeine right now. One of the napping tricks that I tell people about is called a Napa latte. So here's what you do. You take a cup of drip black coffee, just throw in three ice cubes just to cool it down, slug it, then take your 25 minute nap. Here's what happens. Your brain burns through the adenosine, the caffeine is waiting in the wings, it clicks in, you're good for four hours, guaranteed. Wow because it's blocking the adenosine. That's what caffeine does, is it blocks adenosine. So does caffeine also affect uh, getting into one of my all-time favorite parts of the circadian rhythm in, in dreaming? Like, does it stop you from doing that? Well, it doesn't necessarily stop you from doing that, but it does have effects on REM sleep. Remember, you can dream in any stage of sleep. So I'm not, I'll be honest with you, I don't, I'm not familiar with whether or not caffeine affects dreaming, although I will tell you, Anecdotally, I've had patients who are big caffeine users and they tell me that their dreams are very all over the place, anxiety, you know, very speedy. They use the word speedy a lot. Everything moves very fast in their dreams. So I, I believe that might be the brain's way of trying to interpret the stimulating effects of caffeine. Now, to be clear, caffeine has effects across the whole body. You just asked me about the where the sleep goes. Of course, as caffeine raises heart rate, we know that we can't fall asleep with the heart rate above 60, okay? Mm. And so if you got too much caffeine on board, you ain't ever gonna fall asleep because your heart rate is going like this all the time, right? And so we've got that adenosine issue, we've got the heart rate issue. Also, caffeine makes you breathe more, right? Because your lungs are in and out, in and out. So that can also have an effect on sleep as well. So to be fair, 
Caffeine is probably the second, first or second worst thing that you can stick in your body for sleep. And here's a new statistic that I just learned that's even worse, okay? Is I know the half-life of caffeine, depending upon how quickly you metabolize, it's been six and eight hours, but the quarter life of caffeine is 12 hours. So if you have a cup of coffee at noon, a quarter of it is still in your system at midnight. Wow. That's messed up, dude. That is really messed up. I'm right? I mean, just think about it. <laughs> People are messing up their sleep at nine o'clock in the freaking morning and not even realizing it. Mm. Right? And so that's part of the educational process. That's why I love to do podcasts like yours, where we go into the science, start talking about how these things really work. So people can kind of get an understanding. Like, oh, shit. Well, you know what? Like, maybe if I try not to drink so much caffeine or only have it one cup in the morning at 830, let's say, right? You know, let's see what happens there. And what I always tell people is the only way you know if you're getting good sleep or bad sleep is if you decaffeinate yourself, right? Mm. Because we don't know what it looks like. We, I, I'd like a, you know, a level playing field, <laughs> right? And it's hard to get when somebody's drinking caffeine. Now, I want to sort of ask you uh, a question about uh, sex drive and yeah. about your hormones. So speaking about mm. caffeine, yep. does caffeine impact your sex drive, your hormone levels, everything like that? I would, I would, since it's not, it's not my area of expertise, but I would say giving a reasonable scientific guess, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, I mean, we know that caffeine definitely improves performance. Um, that caffeine is a performance enhancer for most athletic activities. Um, lots of people use caffeine to give them a little bit of an edge. There's only a certain amount you can use when you're in competition, things like that. Um, so I would say that more than likely, yeah, it probably helps with performance uh, on some level, but also... Um, it may could it could eventually cause performance detriments, I would imagine, with too much caffeine on board and things like that. Because you've written a book uh, that talks about the perfect time or the exact time for us yep. to actually have sex and run and do all that sort of stuff. Yep. So when is the perfect time? Does it go again on the person's uh, biological thing? or is it- So it's different for each person. And there's some people that I don't recommend caffeine in. So if you remember from my book, we have four chronotypes. We have lions that are early birds, bears that are in the middle, wolves that are night owls, and dolphins that are insomniacs with anxiety, right? So I can tell you right now, you already know which one should never have caffeine, right? Insomniacs with anxiety, right? So like that's one thing that those types of people, and I get it, they're exhausted, they're tired, they they it's not gonna do you any good. It's just gonna make you jitter more, right? So from a chronotypical standpoint, that's a group that I would say probably doesn't need to have caffeine. But if they're going to have one, there's a time in the morning, there's a time in the afternoon. Basically, it's roughly 90 minutes after your wake-up time. And there's a reason for that, right? And so in order to wake up, you need two hormones. You need adrenaline and cortisol. And they kind of go whoosh, and they wake you up. If you have adrenaline and cortisol running around in your head and you add caffeine, that's like adding weak tea to a pile of cocaine, okay? (laughs) It's not going to do you a damn bit of good, right? (laughs) Right? But if you just wait 90 minutes and you see the adrenaline and the cortisol start to drop, and then you add the caffeine, it actually helps elevate the cortisol back up higher. So you get much bigger bang for your buck if you wait after you wake up approximately 90 minutes. The window is really dependent on you, right? And so remember, half-life six to eight hours, quarter-life 12 hours. If you ain't a great sleeper, 
stop drinking caffeine early. If you are a great sleeper, you probably should start stop caffeine early as well because at the end of the day, people have got to remember it's not the quantity of sleep that you get. It's the quality of the sleep that you're getting. And even if you fall asleep with caffeine on board, and let me tell you something, I guarantee you, you got listeners out here and they're saying, the sleep doctor guy's full of crap. I can have an espresso, a cappuccino, and I can fall right to sleep, okay? I bet you can, but if I stick electrodes on your head, your sleep is crap, okay? Yeah. You're gonna wake up and you're not gonna feel good. If I get you decaffeinated, <clears throat> I can get you to feel good when you wake up, and that's the magic. And then you'll go back to coffee to sort of give you that extra boost. Like it's just a a, a constant negative routine that we get stuck in. Um, and, and people are, I would argue it's the most addictive drug that there is. Oh yeah, it's it goes heavily in line with porn addiction, uh, food addiction, yep. all those and gambling addictions and all that. So I'm curious about. I've asked another doctor this only once, and her 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 response to it was fascinating, but it wasn't really her area of expertise. <laughs> she was a neuro neuroscientist, but uh, talking about sleeping and having for males, and I think some females get this too, but having dreams. And oh, wet dreams? waking yeah. up. We with call them nocturnal rhythm. emissions. Yeah. So how does that actually happen? So it's it's not too uncommon, especially for young males going through puberty. Um, men can have it occur well into the, their 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, it has a lot to do with um, the uh, the vividness of your dream. So depending, so you can pretty much pick what you want to dream about if you know and understand that you think about it as you're falling asleep and then your brain just kind of stays into that topic, right? If you're a 14-year-old boy, I'll give you one guess what you're thinking about every single moment of every single day, right? It's 14-year-old <laughs> yeah. girls. So that's one of the reasons that that happens is, you know, uh, young boys have an active fantasy life. And of course, their dreams are exactly the same way. And so it's not an uncommon thing if you ask a teenage boy, hey, do you have have sexual related dreams. Every single one of them does. And so that's when usually it occurs. And it's what's, what has always been so amazing to me about nocturnal emissions is in 90% of the cases, there's no manual stimulation, right? And so how powerful is the human brain that without ever touching your body, it can bring you to an orgasmic state? That's kind of interesting to me, right? That's kind of a cool thing when you start to think about how much power our mind has over our bodies. That is an interesting line of thought. I've actually thought about that myself because like, is the the level of orgasm different or the same? Like, Yeah, it's. I think it would be hard to tell. It would be hard to objectively tell. I mean, basically the same amount of semen is going to be, you know, ejaculated. But I think what would be interesting is if there would be some way that the person could kind of rate their, you know, rate their orgasm in their dream versus when it was during, you know, the daytime. If I had to guess, I would say that it would be better in the dream mm. because anything goes in the dream. You could be sleeping with a supermodel in the dream. You could be whatever it is you want to do, right? Whereas in real life, the chances of that happening may, may or may not occur. So why is it that we do dream in the first place? So it's a great question. Um, nobody has the definitive answer, but we've got a couple of theories, okay? So number one, remember, dreaming is where we move information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. That's kind of one of the main functions of REM sleep. Uh, and dreaming occurs mostly 85% of the time in REM sleep. 
So in order to have that process, our brain has got to make sense of moving that information. So the way I think of it is it's like, it's like if you had a piece of paper and you had this bank of filing cabinets, you got to find the right cabinet, the right drawer and the right file to, to put your information into, right? And so your brain is the filing cabinet and the data is stuff that's coming in through your eyes and your ears and your mouth and your nose, right? There's thousands and thousands of pieces of data coming in. It's not so easy for your brain to make sense of it all. And so I think what dreaming is, is the brain's attempt at making sense of the transition of information from your short-term memory into your long-term memory. Mm -hmm. I think your brain has to have some sort of a manifestation of what that would be. And I think that's where it kind of goes. That's one explanation. Another, uh, which is equally valid, is uh, we think that dreams are where you process emotions, mm -hmm. right? So as an example, when somebody has a nightmare and a nightmare is defined by waking up in the middle of the dream in a scared state, the dream actually stops there and they don't ever get to process the rest. When, you, when you're looking at nightmare therapies, what's fascinating about nightmare therapies is they actually bring people into the room. They, they you know, have them meditate and create that world in their head while awake. And then they say, push play mm. and let it continue out. And they can then process those emotions that they were having surrounding whatever the traumatic event was. So we know that there's some, there's some acceptance of emotion or some processing of emotion during dreams as well. Um, because we see this uh, in the nightmare state and things like that. Um, and so, you know, there's an entire group of scientists where all they do is study dreams. There's the International Association of Dream Researchers. Um, and to be fair, it's not so easy to study dreams um, because they're inside somebody's head. And so you're completely reliant on a subjective person giving you information, things like that. I will tell you, I worked on a very interesting project with lucid dreaming, if you're familiar with what lucid dreaming is. Yeah. So, so for listeners who may not know, lucid dreaming is where you actually gain consciousness inside the dream. So you realize that you're inside the dream and it's like uh, Inception, you know, that movie Inception with Leonardo, whatever, DiCaprio, it's like that, right? So what's interesting about the project that I worked on is we created a goggle and we could reliably induce lucid dreams in anyone we wanted, right? Wow. So you could put this goggle on. It had a certain things that it did. I can't explain it all because it's all NDA and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> but it put people into this lucid state. But that wasn't the most interesting thing that we did. The most interesting thing that we did was we were able to communicate with the dreamer. Damn. That's yeah. something. That is real inception. <laughs> yes, it was. But, but to be clear, it was very rudimentary. So what we did was before the experiment, we, we taught them how to move their eyes up and down as opposed to side to side during REM sleep. And that was the signal that they would give us. And then before they went to sleep, we paired a tone with flying and a tone with race car driving. The two things that most people lucid dream about are flying and having sex with a supermodel. We <laughs> couldn't have them have sex with a supermodel. So we chose race car driving instead. Oh, um, and, <laughs> I know. Right. Um, and so here was the best part is when they did their eyes like that, we send in a tone and it would change the channel. Wow. So whatever they were doing, they were flying. And when we sent in the other tone, whatever they were doing, they were in a race car now. Wow. Yeah. This is, this is amazing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty cool. The study uh, just was published about four weeks ago. Uh, Dr. Ken Poller, P-A-L-L-E-R, uh, people should look him up. He's an amazing scientist. I feel very fortunate to have worked with him. 
um, but he's done some great work there. And we actually combine with four other laboratories from around the world in order to be able to get all the data together and be able to kind of start to understand more. So do you think that in the future we'll have technology capable of actually when someone is in a state of dreaming that we're able to portray that on the screen so people, other people can actually see it? Huh. That's a great question. I don't think so. I'll tell you what I think we will, I, I tell you the reason why I was involved in the project. I don't think we're going to be able to project people's dreams for other people to see. But what I do, cool. that would be cool, but I'm not sure what the utility of it would be. I was interested in it because as an example, I want to get rid of antidepressant medication. Mm. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't it be cool if you could drop in and do therapy inside somebody's head without having to give them a pill and make them toxic for the rest of their lives, right? Good. Yeah. Right. So that, that was my kind of thought was if we can get communication into the subconscious during dream state, we might be able to really understand things like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia. We, we just don't know what's going on in the dreaming state in anybody yet. And so I'm very, very curious to see what, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some cool shit that you can do, but for, but aside from all the cool stuff, I definitely am interested in seeing if we could utilize this for a therapeutic use. Imagine what you could do with trauma. Like that would be exactly. Yeah. That that's so cool. Exactly. Like, uh, like a rape victim, wait. like what could like yeah. what could you do for somebody who underwent a terrible rape? I mean, all rape is terrible, but you know what I'm saying. You know, like so, like those are the kind of situations where you start to think. You know, you start to go outside of the realm of just how do you get good sleep, and you realize that you know we're talking about the brain here. We're talking about the mind. We're talking about just the essence of humanity, and and how does that work? Mm. The brain, the mind, both of those things is so powerful. Like there's so much to actually uncover. Like people are still trying to figure it out. And that's oh. amazing how we've got so many years of very smart individuals like yourself that are studying it, but still have so many more questions to go. <laughs> like that's yeah. incredible. Um, yeah. It's fun. It's amazing. I enjoy it. I, I love this stuff. Like even though I'm not a scientist or a doctor, I love learning about it because yeah. it just it fascinates me the level of the human mind, the body and just how we were created in, in, in all yeah. honesty, like the sheer well, it, end of it. If you think about it, it's the most amazing thing that's ever happened. Like the human being is the most amazing creature that there is. I mean, just think about it from an evolutionary perspective, right? I mean, we do things that I'm not aware of any other creatures that can do them. And so it's, it, it's a complicated, uh, form. <laughs> um, and, and we have to, we have to keep it, you know, running well, you know, that's, that's kind of the goal and doing our best to like, which kind of leads me to my last final questions. Okay. Uh, so diet exercise and all that sort of stuff and how that affects your sleep. So what should we be eating? How much should we be exercising? Cause yep. they say that, uh, sleep starts when you wake up in the morning and how much yep. exercise and what you eat. So what should we be eating? hundred percent. So, so I've written extensively on vegetarian, vegan diet, paleo diet, keto diet, and how sugar affects sleep. So we don't have to drill down into all of that because people can read those blogs and start to understand it. But here's the bottom line is you need to understand the fuel that you are putting into your body. Okay. Too much processed sugar. I'm not saying get rid of all processed sugar because Lord knows I can't. 
Um, but I just can't. I, I like candy. I'm it's ice cream. I'm I'm an idiot. But you know, you do it, and and you start to feel the pain from it, right? And so thinking through some of those ideas, here's a few things that I would recommend. Try to avoid dairy before bed. Okay, yeah. right? Like especially cow dairy, like milk, like milk and you know milk related cow products. Humans really weren't meant to drink cow's milk. Okay, it's just not good for us. And especially if you do it at night, it can definitely cause upset stomach, gastrointestinal reflux. There's all kinds of things. So one thing I would say is if you can maybe avoid some of those dairy related products at night. However, it's okay to have a scoop of ice cream, right? I'm just saying don't eat a half a gallon of ice cream. Okay. <laughs> right. Like those are the things that I want people. It's, it's really about moderation. Um, really more so than anything. Obviously, you don't want to eat food with caffeine or lots and lots of sugar right before bed. If you can help it, um, it would be better off if you didn't. Um, that being said, uh, you also shouldn't go to bed hungry. Um, and so I always tell people, look, if you've eaten at, let's say, 4.35 o'clock, you're an early eater, right? And you're going to bed at, let's say, 10. Well, here's the problem. You're probably almost out of fuel because you've been going for five hours without any any in, ingestion of something. And so a 250 calorie snack, maybe 70% carbs, 25% or 30% either protein or fat works out perfectly because the protein or fat satiates you. And the carbs activate serotonin, which helps calm you down and helps you fall asleep. And it's only a 250 calorie snack. It's not a pint of Ben and Jerry's, you know what I mean? You can't have the whole tub of Ben and Jerry's. You cannot. You Damn. cannot. Exercise, um, same kind of deal, is you don't want to exercise too close to bedtime because it'll increase core body temperature. And we've already had that thermoregulatory conversation. Yep. So you want to keep your core body temperature low. But remember, guys, sleep is recovery. Mm. If you don't do anything to recover from, you are not going to get good sleep. This is one of the reasons why so many people's sleep has been off during the pandemic is because people aren't moving. They were quarantined. They didn't get to exercise. The gym was closed, blah, 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 right? And so remember, you don't have to run a marathon, but 20 to 25 minutes of some level of cardiovascular exercise every single day, not three days a week, every single day is a good idea mm. and will be good for sleep. Love it. So last question for you, Dr. Bruce. Uh, this is my all-time favorite one. So it's a hypothetical question, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Then ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. They've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Wow, that is a fascinating question. So. I think it would want to say that number one would be family for me, um, especially with my kids. I would want to have a lot of pictures of them and a lot of their good times and hopefully had the opportunity to celebrate those good times with them. Um, the second would be my marriage. Um, I would want to have my wife in there and understand her feelings and thoughts. Um, and then I would want to have made a real substantial contribution uh, to sleep uh, and to helping people. And um, I'm fully planning on living to 100, just to be clear. Um, and so I pretty much think I'm going to get there. I mean, I'm 53 now and I'm doing pretty good. Um, so I only got another 47 years and my grandfather lived to 103 in 10 months. So I've got the genetics. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. <laughs> that is mad. Okay. That so I, I may end up there. And when he passed, 
Um, if he had had a, a, a film like that, I don't think his, I think he would have been similar to what I'm saying. I think it would have been a lot of family first and then hopefully made a contribution that helped people's lives. Well, you've made a, a big contribution to my life today and all, all the listeners. Thanks. Where can people find you, Dr. Bruce? Learn more about yeah. you. You got your Mind Valley courses as well, which people can go check out. You got a free one Absolutely. there too. They're great. So thanks. Um, so number one, you're in Australia, right? I am, yes. So uh, once a month, I'm on Sunrise Australia on the television there. Yeah. So you can look for me there for sure. Um, number two, you can find me at any the sleep doctor handle you can imagine. So I own the website, I own the Twitter, I own the Facebook, I own the LinkedIn, I own the Snapchat. I don't know what all the Instagram. <laughs> there, I got them all. So um, what we do that's fun though is if you if you get on all of them, we did we put different content on each one, so you can oh. go around the horn and learn different things when you want to. So it's a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Bruce, thank you so much for making part two happen and for coming on the Storybox podcast and explaining everything for us. <laughs> Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you to everyone who's listening. If you get a chance, go to chronoquiz.com and figure out your chronotype because I promise you it'll be the key to what helps you sleep. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 